Hi, it's Amy Siskin of The Weekly List and author of the book, The List, and welcome to episode 21 of The Weekly List Podcast, which accompanies week 101 on The Weekly List website, theweeklylist.org, and corresponds to the week ended October 20th, 2018. Welcome. So with the midterms approaching, I wanted to start off this week talking about what's happening as the elections approach. And we also covered this week that a record number of people have been registering to vote and a record number of early voters have come out as of week 101. And that's for a reason, folks. The things we're covering in this weekly list are examples of norms being broken. And because there's no checks and balances or few checks and balances, only really our judicial branch on Trump, he's gradually been pushing boundaries and getting away with more and more. We're going to be talking about some of the things this week that he's gotten away with. But one thing that we've noticed in the last two years is there's no accountability. And so he keeps going and pushing these boundaries further. And the other concern is that Americans have just gotten used to the fact that he can get away with these things. What's happening in the midterms is the prospect of changing the legislative branch and having parts of our government hold Trump accountable, have hearings, have subpoenas, have his taxes become public, have hearings on Puerto Rico, on Whitewater Energy and some of the other related entities. Um, or any of the bevy of other things that we discuss week after week that, uh, again, go unchecked. But as with elections, there's always the concern about interference, especially after 2016. We're going to talk this week about the first case of um, charges being brought for interfering with the 2018 election against a Russian woman. Um, But before we get to that, I want to talk about another kind of election interference, and that is, as as we say, it's coming from inside the House, (laughs) in this case, in our own country, Uh, and from the Republican Party, although, you know, again, the weekly list is not partisan. Attacks on our democracy and breaking of norms are of concern and something that we cover. So tracing back a few weeks ago, we discussed in the podcast about a Supreme Court case in Indiana. So I want to start it back then. The importance of not only the fact of how it was decided, but how it got there and then lead into some of the other examples that we're seeing this week. In Indiana, the Supreme Court found that the state could purge voter rolls. And that's a case that had been working its way up to the Supreme Court and had been one level below the Supreme Court at the the time Obama was in office. At that point, under Eric Holder, the uh, Department of Justice had sided with the other side of this case against Indiana to say that purging the voter rolls was discriminatory and should not pass. By the time it got to the Supreme Court, something happened. Under Jeff Sessions, the Justice Department actually switched sides and joined Indiana in their call to be able to purge voter rolls. And so that passed, and so that's happened in Indiana, and it's also subsequently happened in many red states, including Georgia, which we talked about last week. And I want to talk about Georgia again this week, because information is continuing to come out that's troubling. The picture that accompanies week 101 
are people waiting in line three weeks before the election for three hours in order to get to vote. That's how concerned they are in a close election where Brian Kemp is running for governor and also in the position to be secretary of state against a black American woman, Stacey Abrams. And he's very quite purposely targeting the votes of African-Americans. So let's start out with Georgia. On Sunday, while being asked about current Georgia Secretary of State and Republican gubernatorial candidate Brian Kemp and voter suppression, Georgia's Senator David Perdue grabbed a phone away from a student member of the Young Democratic Socialists of America who was videoing the exchange. On Monday in Georgia, senior citizens on a bus from their senior center going to cast their votes were ordered off the bus over concerns about their political activity, which isn't allowed during county-sponsored events. On Tuesday, Washington Post reported hundreds of absentee ballots in suburban Atlanta have been rejected. Advocates say the move disproportionately impacts Black, Latino, and Asian American voters. On Friday, an 8 p.m. reports analysis found Georgia has purged an estimated 107,000 people from the voter roll, largely because they did not vote in prior elections, known as use it or lose it policy. And again, that's the Supreme Court president I opened up with in Indiana. On Friday, a separate analysis done by Palast Investigative Fund found GOP candidate Kemp has improperly purged 340,000 votes in Georgia from the rolls on the grounds they had moved although many had not. So that was Georgia. On Monday, some of the other states being impacted, Tennessee Black Voter Project filed an open suit in Shelby County to inspect thousands of voter registration forms officials say are deficient. The group called it a, quote, alarmingly high invalidation rate. That's Tennessee. On Thursday, the Wichita Eagle reported Dodge City, where Hispanics make up 60% of the population moved its polling place for midterms to outside the city limits to a facility more than a mile from the nearest bus stop. Leaders of the four largest tribes in North Dakota called a new court suppression, the new court order suppressive and accused the states of attempts to disfranchise Native American voters, saying they will fight to protect their right to vote. Um, And then in other states, now we're moving on to Missouri. On Thursday, the Kansas City Star reported a conservative activist project, excuse me, a conservative activist with Project Veritas, who posed as an intern for Senator Claire McCaskill, had access to voter information and published a video from inside the campaign. McCaskill's office called on Attorney General Josh Hawley, her 2018 senatorial opponent to appoint a special counsel to investigate if the group violated state laws by recording and publishing the video. We'll see if that happens, just like in Georgia, somebody using their power while running for office. On Friday, the Kansas City Star reported the executive director of the Missouri Republican Party acknowledged the party sent mailers to 10,000 voters with false information about when their absentee ballots are due. So those are all state examples of interference. 
On Monday, NBC News reported Department of Homeland Security assessment issued last week found, quote, a growing volume of cyber activity targeting election interference in 2018. All attempts have been blocked. The assessment found, quote, numerous actors are regularly targeting election infrastructure, likely for different purposes, including to cause disruptive effects, steal sensitive data, and undermine confidence in the election. That's super important because you know who else has been trying to undermine confidence in the election as things look more tricky for the Republicans in the midterms is Donald Trump. So that's part of authoritarianism. It's taking away trust in the institutions. It's taking away trust in our right to vote and the fairness of our vote. And the voter suppression going unchecked is another reason that this election becomes so important. Um, You know, I just also want to talk about something else major that's happened. And we started talking about the story last week. There was less clarity last week, although we had suspicions about a journalist living in Virginia, um, Jamal Khashoggi, who was writing for the Washington Post, who we believed um, had been murdered by Saudi by Saudis uh, in the Turkish consulate in their Turkish in their consulate in Turkey. So what's happened is Trump, even though it is a journalist living in America, has tried to distance himself with the story. And then this week it played out. But I want to just lay out the importance of how we treat the free press. We talked about the tenets of our democracy, trust in our institutions. So let's talk about that story and how it developed this week. On Monday, Trump tweeted in response to the disappearance of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, quote, just spoke to King of Saudi Arabia who denies any knowledge of whatever may have happened, in quotes, to our Saudi Arabian citizen. Again, that's Trump distancing himself. Moments later, Trump told reporters of his conversation with King Salman of Saudi Arabia and said, quote, the king firmly denied any knowledge of it. It sounded to me like maybe... These could have been rogue killers. Sounds familiar from the Kavanaugh trial, doesn't it, folks? Later Monday, seemingly following Trump's lead, Saudi Arabia changed his story, saying Khashoggi was mistakenly killed during an interrogation ordered by Saudi intelligence officials, who is a friend of the crown prince. At this point early in the week, senators on both sides were speaking out against what was happening, but as often the case has Often, every single time the case, they have done nothing about it. They go to the mics, they complain, how dare we not be the leader of the free world and speak out against what is happening, and yet they do nothing. And all the other leaders of the free world have taken action against Saudi Arabia in some shape or spoken out about it. But no, let's keep going with Trump. Here's what Trump said. So when asked about uh, Khashoggi in an interview he did with AP early in the week, Trump said, quote, I think we have to find out what happened first, adding, you're guilty until proven innocent. I don't like that. And he compared it to, again, the Kavanaugh confirmation. Uh, On Wednesday, details continued to come out through the news about what happened. Now the news was coming out that Saudis had severed Khashoggi's fingers during the interrogation and later beheaded and dismembered him. On Wednesday that same day, the New York Times reported that Saudi Arabia made a $100 million deposit to the U.S. Um, and that was made on Tuesday, the same day Secretary of State Mom- Mike Pompeo arrived in Riyadh to stabilize liberated areas 
of Syria is what the payment was allegedly for. Trump also defended the alleged Saudi arms deal, um, which he said on Wednesday would create 450,000 jobs. Over the past weekend, Trump had claimed the deal would create 50,000 jobs. On Thursday, Senate Foreign Relations Chairman Bob Corker, a Republican, warned the Trump regime that its intelligence information clamped down on the alleged killer of, of Khashoggi can't go on. So again, this is a Republican speaking out against Trump for not sharing information about what U.S. intelligence knew. On Thursday, the Washington Post reported hardline Republicans and conservative commentators are planning a whisper campaign to smear Khashoggi and protect Trump from criticism. So again, this is all the same pattern, the same thing we did with with the Kavanaugh hearing, discredit, lie, just deny, 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 and then smear the other side. This group was were exchanging articles from right-wing outlets that have already been published as means to discredit Dushogi, and one was uh, his association with the Muslim Brotherhood in his youth. On Thursday, Fox News anchor Harris Faulkner asserted Khashoggi was tied to the Muslim Brotherhood. Shortly after that, on the campaign trail, Virginia Republican Corey Stewart echoed that sentiment. Another area that they were trying to use this group of of conservatives that were allies of Trump was to discredit discredit Khashoggi because of his work decades ago as an embedded reporter covering Osama bin Laden. Donald Trump Jr. amplified a tweet that Khashoggi was, quote, tooling around Afghanistan with Osama bin Laden. So here we are smearing a dead journalist to side with the Saudis. And of course, Twitter was involved. NBC News reported that Twitter suspended a network of hundreds of Twitter bots that were pushing post-Saudi talking points. Then finally on Friday, the Saudi government, you know, your Friday afternoon special when people aren't supposed to be paying attention at six o'clock, the Saudi government announced in a tweet by the Saudi foreign minister that Khashoggi was killed inside the Saudi consulate claiming he died during a fistfight. So that must have been hell of a fistfight with 15 guys and a a saw. Uh, The Saudi government said it fired five top officials and arrested 18 other Saudis. This was the first acknowledgement by the Saudis that Khashoggi, who went missing October 2nd, was killed inside the consulate. On Friday, Trump broke the U.S. intelligence broke from the U.S. intelligence agency's findings, saying the Saudi explanation of the death is credible and calling the statement a good first step and a big step. Trump also said no need to cancel defense contracts, saying we don't use, we don't use as, repu- as retribution, canceling $110 billion worth of work, which means, guess now, 600,000 jobs. So we went from 50,000 last weekend to 450,000. By Friday, it was 600,000 jobs. Soon we'll be, you know, it'll be the entire country, Full Employment Act, thanks to this Saudi contract that doesn't exist. Meanwhile, other world leaders, as I mentioned, including France, Germany, the United Kingdom, and the Netherlands said they would be pulling their um, their trips coming up to the, to the Saudi Arabia and, and taking further action. Um, so that was how the world was doing it. And what we used to do as a world leader was to care about such things. We used to also care about our free pet press and value our free press. On Thursday at a rally in Montana for um, 
You'll remember this man from early in our weekly list, Greg Giaforte, who had body slammed a reporter in 2017 during a special election, a reporter for The Guardian. Trump praised Greg Gianforte up on stage, who again had pleaded guilty to assaulting the reporter in 2017. And he said, quote, any guy who can do a body slam, he's my candidate, he's my guy. This is the leader of the free world saying that body slamming a member of the free press is a good thing. After the rally, The Guardian U.S. editor issued a statement condemning Trump's attack, saying, quote, we hope decent people will denounce these remarks and that the president will see fit to apologize for him, them. Anybody want to guess if he did? On Friday, the British government joined press freedom advocates and journalists in speaking out against Trump's remarks, saying, quote, any violence or intimidation against a journalist is completely unacceptable. The editor-in-chief of The Guardian UK wrote, quote, the world's press would welcome a clear statement from the U.S. government that it remains committed to the rights of journalists everywhere to do their work without fear of violence or repression. So while they were waiting on Friday, Trump was asked again by reporters about his praise for Gianforte at a signing ceremony, and Trump said, quote, Craig is a tremendous guy, tough cookie. So that's where we are, folks. Yes, not only will we not speak out against the murder of by the Saudis of a journalist, but now we're celebrating a, a representative up for re-election who body slammed a journalist. So that's the lesson we are teaching our young children. That's what we're telling our free the rest of the free world, uh, which we used to be the leader of, about how we will treat free media and the free press and how we value that. So notice that's not normal for a democracy. Notice that is normal for an authoritarian regime and where we are. Okay, now I want to talk about some of our, this week in racism, everyday racism, starting with what happened in the beginning of week when Trump was defending a story that is not getting enough attention, and that is the fact that he is thinking about separating families at the border again. Speaking to reporters, Trump defended separating families at the border, saying the fear of being separated from children deters some immigrants. Although this, there's no uh, evidence to show this actually worked, given what happened in our own country with his zero, uh, zero tolerance policy and how since then the number of migrants coming in has actually spiked. Trump told reporters, if they feel there will be separation, they don't come. Again, that's false. And he also said, you've got some really bad people out there. Trump claimed the influx is, quote, because of how well our country is doing. Uh, and then he continued that theme uh, early in the week, blaming Democrats for opening borders and creating a friendly sanctuary for murderous thugs from other countries who will kill us. Um, and that's been kind of his theme is, you know, to blame the Democrats and to make that a bring back his political issue from 2016. Um, and then on Monday, um, you know, and this was actually happening as the week started, but on Monday there were finally arrests. On Saturday, a video surfaced of white nationalist male-only Proud Boys brutally beating up several men after attending a lecture by their founder at the Metropolitan Republican Club of New York City. Three were arrested after clashes with protesters. A Proud Boy member can be heard saying, are you brave now, faggot? 
as they beat this young man. Uh, and then finally, on Monday, under pressure, the New York Police Department moved to quell criticism of their handling of the brawl, saying they were seeking nine additional members of the Proud Boys. Um, just in terms of the Proud Boys themselves, they are a hate group, a neo-Nazi group. They are all male, all white. So that's happening now in Trump's America. Uh, also on Saturday, hate flyers were left on some residents' lawns in Cherry Hill, New Jersey that feature images of Hitler or the Ku Klux Klan, offensive language, and a phone number. Police are investigating the incident as a hate crime. A white woman in St. Louis, Missouri, was captured on a video trying to block a black man from entering his own downtown loft. She was later fired from her job for an associated real estate company. This year's White House Fellow class of 14 includes 13 with a military or law enforcement background in their biographies. Of the 14, only two are women, whereas under Obama, women made up half the class. Um, according to a new poll by YouGov and The Economist, nearly half of people who voted for Trump in 2016 believe men are discriminated against more than the LGBT community, women, and most, most ethnic minorities. Intercept reported the Department of Health and Human Services is considering a, re a request from a South Carolina Christian foster care agency to deny Jewish, Muslim, atheist, and agnostic parents the right to take in kids. And then I wanted to talk about some everyday corruption this week in the Trump regime. On Thursday, the House Oversight Committee alleged in a letter that Trump intervened in the FBI headquarter project to help protect business for his hotel, Trump Hotel DC. In emails that have now been made public that uh, through this letter, Trump actually met with the General Services Administrator, Emily Murphy, the FBI and White House officials on January 24th, 2018, and he was directly involved in decision-making. If you're not following this story, the FBI headquarters were supposed to be relocated to a less expensive spot out of the city that would have left a plot of land open down the street on Pennsylvania Avenue from the Trump Hotel DC. And therefore a competitor could move in say, and build a hotel down that street. So Trump, as a result, was able to kill that project. The FBI headquarters are going to stay where they are and his competition potentially is going to stay away. Fast Company reported that Trump signaled his support for Rep. Kevin McCarthy for his candidacy for Speaker of the House after McCarthy's PAC spent $154,000 to host a reception at the Trump Hotel DC. On Thursday, a report published, okay, follow this story. This was really something. A report published by the Interior Department Inspector General found that Secretary Ryan Zinke violated agency travel policy by having his wife ride in government-issued vehicles with him. The Trump regime denied reports they were replacing the department's independent watchdog who has overseen multiple investigations into Zinke with a political appointee. And why did they have to deny that? On Thursday, Susan Israel Tufts resigned from her post at the Department of Housing and Urban Development after a mistaken announcement sent to HUD employees by Secretary Ben Carson. 
Secretary Carson informed staffers he would be leaving, she would be leaving to take a job as acting inspector general at the Interior Department. The current acting interior, acting (laughs) IG, Mary Kendall, had not been informed that she was being replaced. So all that happened this week. We are literally living in the land of the Keystone Cops. Uh, In addition to last week, Nikki Haley leaving, this week there was another major departure from the Trump regime. On Wednesday, White House Counsel Don McGahn resigned effective immediately. No explanation was given. We knew he was going to resign. But just like Nikki Haley last week, it happened weeks before the midterms. And not only did he resign, he literally left that day, effective immediately. And you could tell it wasn't planned because Emmett Flood will temporarily take over as McGahn's, in McGahn's role as White House counsel, while Trump's new appointee, Washington lawyer Pat Cipollone, waits for his background check to clear. So just notice that really odd timing and what's happening. Now we're going to talk about Russia next, and it might start to make a little more sense. On Thursday, The Guardian reported Aris Agragalov, who helped orchestrate the June 9th Trump Tower meeting, set up a new U.S. shell company in May 2016. The Russian accountant that helped set up the account has clients accused of money laundering and embezzlement. According to interviews and filings, Aragalov was preparing to move $20 million during the elections. So this is all right before the June 9th Trump Tower meeting. On Wednesday, CNN reported that Paul Manafort and his lawyers have visited Mueller's office at least nine times in the last four weeks, an indication that the special counsel is moving at a fast clip. Mueller's team is continuing to interview witnesses. Special counsel prosecutors have gathered a grand jury to meet in Washington on most Fridays and have visited the federal courthouse in Washington almost daily. So again, signs that things, even though it's quiet on the outside, things are moving along quickly in the Mueller probe. (coughs) On Friday, NBC News reported Manafort was rolled into a Virginia federal courthouse in a wheelchair, wearing a green prison uniform, his hair visibly grayer. He was also missing one shoe. According to Manafort's attorney, there are significant issues with Manafort's health. Downing asked for the court to expedite Manafort's sentencing so he could be moved to a different facility. Judge T.S. Eliot decided Manafort will be sentenced on February 8th for financial crimes after a jury found him guilty in August. With another trial on separate charges still looming in Washington, the judge granted a request from Mueller's team for more time to decide whether to retry Manafort or dismiss the remaining charges that remain in Virginia. That was an issue last week, so that has been resolved. On Friday, and this is something we opened with, the first case of interference in the 2018 election. On Friday, the Justice Department announced it had charged Russian Alana going to mispronounce his last name, Kujinova, with conspiring to interfere with the 2018 U.S. election. On Friday, the Justice Department announced it had charged Russian Alana Kushinova with conspiring to interfere with the U.S. election, the first charges for interfering in the upcoming midterms. She managed the finances of what was called Project Latka, an operation designed to sow discord in the U.S. political system by pushing incendiary positions on political controversies on social media platforms. 
Prosecutors said the project attempted to sow conflict among racial lines and at times advocated positions that directly opposed each other with the objective of turning Americans against each other. Latka is is the name of a neighborhood in St. Petersburg near the location of the Troll Farm Internet Research Agency that we talked about last week that burned to the ground suddenly. Uh, The project's operating budget from 2016 to 2018 exceeded $35 million, although not all its activities targeted the U.S. Funding was provided by a Russian oligarch, who is also known as Putin's chef, uh, his name is Prigonzin, uh, and two of the companies he controlled, Concord Management and Consulting and Concord Catering. The complaint was filed under seal in late September and kept secret for three weeks. It was unveiled due to National Security Advisor John Bolton's pending trip to Russia and also to raise public awareness about Russia's political influence campaigns. Of note, this is not part of a Mueller investigation, just so you, you know, it was not brought by Mueller's team, I should say more accurately. On Friday, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence said in a statement, quote, we are concerned about ongoing campaigns by Russia, China, and other foreign actors, including Iran. The office said the goal is to, quote, undermine confidence in democratic institutions and influence public sentiment and to influence voter perception and decision-making in the 2018 and 2020 U.S. elections. When asked by reporters about charges against Russian nationals, Trump said he had, quote, nothing to do with my camp, it had nothing to do with my campaign, added they probably like Hillary Clinton better than me. He also said there was, quote, no collusion whatsoever, and shifted the blame to Obama, who he said didn't lift a finger to stop Russia from interfering in the 2016 election. On Friday, the Wall Street Journal reported Jerome Corsi, Roger Stone, and associates of the late Peter W. Smith are all being investigated by Mueller's team for their alleged contacts with WikiLeaks. Mueller's team has Stone's telephone records and evidence Smith had advanced knowledge of the details surrounding WikiLeaks' release of emails from a top Hillary Clinton campaign official. So that's Smith, who we talked about, who suddenly committed suicide. He knew that those emails were coming out. So that was the news on Russia this week. It was also noteworthy this week that Bloomberg reported that special counsel Robert Mueller is expected to issue his findings shortly after midterms. Department of Justice guidelines say to avoid disclosure close to an election that could be seen as influencing the outcome. Reportedly, Mueller is close to rendering a judgment on whether two subjects, whether there was collusion between Russia and Trump's 2016 campaign, and also whether Trump took any actions that constitute obstruction of justice. The timeline raises concerns about the probe itself. Trump has said multiple times he will fire Attorney General Jeff Sessions after midterms, and Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein may resign or be fired too. Also on Wednesday, in a rare interview with the Wall Street Journal, Rosenstein forcefully defended the special counsel investigation into Russian interference, calling it, quote, appropriate and independent. He also said, quote, and this is important, folks, he said, quote, the public will have confidence that the cases we brought were warranted by the evidence and that it was appropriate appropriate use of resources 
and that the investigation was appropriately managed. Of course, the next day, House Freedom Caucus Chair Mark Meadows called on Rosenstein to resign immediately. So things are coming to a head. A lot of developments on Russia, the first charges for ongoing uh, attempts to influence our election and signs that shortly after the midterms, we're going to be hearing more from Mueller and his team about their findings. Um, so as that continues back to politics and campaigning, Trump, again, going back to his themes of 2016, had something come that kind of plays into his wheelhouse, and that's a caravan of 4,000 Honduran migrants who are heading north by walking, taking buses and hitching rides and cars, and they're fleeing gangs and seeking work and more stability for their families in Mexico or the U.S., on Monday, roughly 2,000 of those migrants had pushed past police into Guatemala, and that's when Trump really started going nuts. And on Tuesday, he had nothing else to do, so he basically was sitting tweeting. He did a total of 22 tweets uh, that day, um, part of it on this caravan. Part of it was insulting women, going after um, Senator Elizabeth Warren, calling Stormy Daniels horseface. Uh, but in addition to that, he was also playing into his favorite theme, which is going after these people, these migrants who, in his mind, every single one is a, an aspiring criminal coming to kill Americans. And of course, the Democrats are all behind this. So that was a major theme for this week. Trump tweeted, quote, anybody entering the United States illegally will be arrested and detained prior to being sent back to their country. He also on Tuesday threatened to take away U.S. aid in tweets from Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, and Mexico if the caravan does not stop. You can sort of see literally as this gets closer and closer, Trump getting more and more angry and worked up in his tweets. On Thursday, Trump threatened to send the military to the border, tweeting he is asking, quote, Mexico to stop this onslaught, and if unable to do so, I will call up the U.S. military and, in all capital letters, close our, th our southern border. Trump also claimed without evidence the Democrats are backing the caravan to bolster what he said was the party's preference for open borders and existing weak laws. That was all Thursday. And then Thursday, Bloomberg reported Chief of Staff John Kelly and John Bolton engaged in a profanity-laced shouting match outside the Oval Office on Thursday. The topic was immigration and the surge in border crossings, with Bolton criticizing the performance of Homeland Security Department Secretary Nielsen and Kelly defending her. CNN reported Trump was present for the beginning of the sunny match, but later denied knowing about it. The sharp disagreement sparked fears of further resignations in the regime. Reportedly, the caravan issue has been the subject of several White House meetings in recent days, not only how to stop it, but how to use it for midterms. On Friday, when asked by a New York Times reporter what evidence he had that migrants trying to enter our country at the border are, quote, hardened criminals, Trump responded, quote, oh, please, please don't be a baby. So that was one theme this week. The second theme this week that Trump has brought back from his 2016 campaign for midterms, uh, something he started last week saying that the Democrats are the party of mobs. On Tuesday, as I mentioned, when he had nothing on his schedule and spent the day tweeting all sorts of lovely sentiments, he also started this hashtag 
jobs, not mobs, which he continued to tweet during the week and also used it as a theme in his, um, his campaign rallies this week. You know, in addition to the usual lock her up and references to Hillary, who has not been running for anything for the last two years, but still seems to be front or at center at every Republican uh, rally, nonetheless, um, Trump really loves to play on this new mob idea. He called Democrats the party in Montana of open borders and crime and also said radical far left Democrats have, quote, truly turned into an angry mob bent on destroying anything and anyone in their path. He also um, <laughs> came up with this catchy line. He said, quote, Democrats produce mobs, Republicans produce jobs. Yes, that is definitely a keeper. So Trump continued those kind of themes uh, on Friday in another one of his campaign rallies when he called Democrats, quote, an angry mob on Twitter uh, first. And, and he used clips of Hillary Clinton and Eric Holder that were sort of spliced in half off mid-sentence. And again, that clever hashtag we talked about. And then that evening at another rally in Arizona, he was back to talking about the mobs, the Democrat mobs uh, that are coming to get us and changing. His new quote was, vote for the jobs, not the mobs, and calling the Democrats uh, unhinged mob. Oh, boy. Uh, so that happened. Um, and that seems to be his new theme ahead of the elections. So we'll be watching that. And we talked about in the beginning of the segment that as of Saturday, there's a record number of Americans that have already cast their ballots, more than 4.3 million Americans, despite the voter suppression efforts. In Georgia alone, more than 300,000 residents have voted early, about 30% of whom are black Americans. So that seems to be something new. Um, there's also reporting this week about resistance groups being a very important part of this election uh, and the vote of the college white women and the resistance groups themselves. The leaders seem to be, or the groups are made up 90% of women, 90% are white, and 83% are either bachelor's or graduate degrees. Uh, and the fervor is building up there. Democrat campaigns also... Uh, estimate by using information at ActBlue that 4.5 million contributions so far this year have been made with about 61% coming from women compared to 1.5 million in 2014. So that's triple the amount of contributions. And back then, 52% were from women. Also of note this week, Republican Women for Progress PAC run by Republican women in Michigan announced they will be backing Democrats in two key House races. Uh, and in what campaign experts say may be your first, outdoor clothing company Patagonia endorsed two Democratic candidates. Just one other odd and ed to close out with. On uh, Monday, Sears announced it was closing 142 stores, filing for bankruptcy. Trump told reporters Sears has been dying for many years, but just of note, the market has continued to be rough. Um, we talked about Westmoreland Coal fil filing for bankruptcy last week. The federal deficit numbers came out this week, and our deficit has ballooned to $779 billion for the fiscal year ended September 30th, a 17% increase due to the Republican tax cut. Corporate tax collections fell by 31%. 
The deficit is expected to top $1 trillion in this coming year. Majority Leader Mitch McConnell blamed federal spending, called for cuts to programs like Medicare, Social Security, and Medicaid. So you can see where this is going, folks, in a very scary direction. We're two weeks from midterms. Couldn't be more important. People couldn't be more enthused. So with that, we will leave you till next week. If you're listening to this, uh, again, please leave us a rating and please share this on Facebook and Twitter. We'll talk to you soon. Have a great week. 